I hope this works. Thank you very much for this invitation. I'm especially pleased, although a little bit afraid, out of respect, that uh, my respondent will be my good friend, Cornel West, because I also share his basic orientation, which is to combine progressive political engagement with certain, the least one can say, is positive attitude or appropriation of, uh, of uh, re religious topic, religious stance, and so on. I also think we can follow that, uh, that path, which makes us a minority, maybe, in today's progressive academia but I think wait till 20 years when we'll take power and then we'll no longer be 
Okay. Uh, let's do some serious work today. I don't want to go into the direction of that unfortunate movie on me because I only seen it once and then my idea was like, would you allow your daughter, would you allow that guy to take your daughter to a movie? No, I mean, I, <laughs> okay. So let me start. I really want to talk about belief. You will immediately run, learn, it's not a big surprise what the chicken are, no, from the title. But belief, what do we mean, what do we believe, especially how, sorry, how do we believe today? Uh, I think that our predicament with regards to belief finds its perfect expression in a documentary that I saw recently called Sandcastles, Buddhism and Global Finance. It's a documentary by Alexander Owie, I'm not sure I pronounce it correctly. Uh, it's a uh, documentary which combines commentaries from economist Arnold Booth, sociologist Saskia Sassen, and the Tibetan Buddhist teacher Dzongar Kientse Rinpoche. Sassen and Booth discuss the gigantic scope, power, as well as social and economic effects of global finance. Capital markets now valued at an estimated uh, uh, $83 trillion exist without, within a system based purely on self-interest, in which herd behavior, often based on rumors, can inflate or destroy the value of companies or whole economies in a matter of hours. Then, the Tibetan Buddhist counters them with ruminations about the nature of human perception, illusion, desire, and enlightenment. His statement is, release your attachment to something that is not there in reality, but is only a perception. This statement is supposed to throw a new light on the mad dance of zillion dollars speculations. Now, echoing the Buddhist notion that there is no self, only a stream of continuous perceptions, Saskia Sassen comments about global capital, quote, it's not that there are 83 trillion. It is essentially a continuous set of movements. It disappears and it reappears. So it's a, you got the point that the ontology, as it were, that is forced on you, imposed on you, if you participate in this uh, financial deals, in uh, speculations on future, etc., etc., is basically the Buddhist ontology. No substantial reality, the fragility of reality, and so on. The problem here is, of course, how are we to read this parallel between the Buddhist ontology and the structure of virtual capitalism's universe? The film tends towards the humanist reading. Seen through a Buddhist lens, the exuberance of global financial wealth is illusory divorced from objective reality. The very real human suffering created by deals made on trading floors and in boardrooms invisible to most of us. If, however, that's now my critical reaction, if one accepts the premise that the value of material wealth and one's experience of reality is subjective and that desire plays the crucial role in both daily life and neoliberal economics, is it not possible to draw from it the exact opposite conclusion? Is it not that our traditional life world, 
was based on the naive realist substantialist notions of external reality composed of fixed objects, while the unheard of dynamics of virtual capitalism confronts us with the illusory na nature of reality. When you see that a rumor can, uh, a rumor can cause the collapse of whole economies and so on and so on, isn't this a, a wonderful lesson on the fragility of our notion of reality? Again, what better proof of the non-substantial character of reality than a gigantic fortune which can dissolve into nothing in a couple of hours due to a sudden false rumor? Consequently, why complain that financial speculations with futures are divorced from objective reality when the basic premise of the Buddhist ontology is that there is no objective reality in the first place? The only critical lesson to be drawn from the Buddhist perspective about today's virtual capitalism is that one should be aware that we are dealing with a mere theater of shadows, with non-substantial virtual entities, and consequently, that we should not fully engage ourselves in the capitalist game, that we should play the game with an inner distance. Virtual capitalism could thus act as the first step towards liberation. It confronts us with the fact that the cause of our suffering and enslavement is not objective reality itself, there is no such thing, but our desire, our craving for material things, our excessive att attachment to them. All one has to do after one gets rid of the false notion of substantialist reality is to renounce desire itself, to adopt the attitude of inner peace and distance. No wonder such Buddhism can function as the perfect ideology of today's virtual capitalism. It allows us to participate in the capitalist game with an inner distance, with our fingers crossed, as it were. I hope you got my point. I'm not praising capitalism. On the contrary, I am rather criticizing, if not Buddhism itself, at least a certain use of it. I think, again, that this kind of a ontology which says, you know, that there is no fixed reality, it's just a flux of perception, renounce the notion of substantialist reality, there is no self, you don't exist, and so on, the world is just a game, that this is the perfect attitude for today's capitalism. That is to say, what? That is to say that this kind of a disbelieving attitude, don't take the game seriously, don't engage yourself fully, this is what is needed if the system is to function smoothly today. Let me give you the opposite experience. When the new pope, the German cardinal Josef Ratzinger, was elected, now I think he's Benedict XVI, some of my friends were shocked and their reproach was, my God, but this guy really believes in that Christ, uh, Christ incarnation and so on and so on. <laughs> I mean, uh, and this tells us a lot about how this kind of Buddhist, Western Buddhist, skeptical attitude is all around us. Like we are almost shocked if somebody, if we discover that somebody really, that somebody really believes. I don't know how it is in your country, but I know that in Europe recently there were some interesting uh, sociological uh, 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 in inquiries where they asked people, thousands of people, a series of questions. They started with, are you a Christian? 
Okay, 80% said yes. Then later, not immediately afterwards, but like half an hour later to confuse them, they asked them the same question, but in a different form. Just asking a more specific question, which is part of the fundamental Christian dogma. Like, do you believe that there was 2,000 years ago a guy walking around Palestina who was the son of God? 5% believe it. So <laughs> what did they mean by the first one? But so how does it structure? Let me be very specific here. My claim is not they don't really believe it. My claim is that this is how today belief itself is structured. We all know the Marx Brothers standard joke story. This man looks as an idiot, he acts as an idiot, this shouldn't deceive you, he is an idiot. I think this is how the shock we discover when we see a religious person. It would be this man looks as if he believes, he acts as if he believes, but this shouldn't deceive you, he really believes. We are always surprised when we see this. And my thesis will be that the same goes also for atheists. It's also, he looks, he acts as an atheist, but it's always a shock to discover that the guy you are talking to really is an atheist. That is to say, I don't know what's your experience, but my experience is whenever I find a person like postmodern theorists who are supposed to be atheists and so on, then I will not name names, I'm not in McCarthy business, but let me tell you that some of the very big names are on my list. You know, and you know, like that, uh, God, deconstruct God. But then I ask them, but do you really accept that there is nothing, no God, and so on? Practically all of them, again, I can give you almost uh, who is who in deconstruction theory and so on. Practical, tell me, of course I don't believe in institutional religion, of course I don't believe that there is somebody up there, God, but you never know, maybe I have deep respect for spirit, there is some higher force maybe and so on and so on. I mean, it's very difficult to find a person who would look you straight into the eye and say, no, I really, I really don't believe. Uh, but my other surprise is that it's similar with uh, religious people. I mean, people who are officially religious, I like to ask them the opposite question, logical. But do you really believe? And often I get the same, no, it's not a matter of belief, it's more how important this is, how it makes you feel good, to cut a long story short. <laughs> how, how it makes you feel richer and so on and so on. So, I claim that it functions, and I will later try to explain how, it functions through this speech. So it is as if to really believe, to have this deep belief, you have to put up an atheist front mask. Then, or the other way around, to be skeptical, you have to superficially appear as religious. Maybe you know some plays and novels by Graham Greene, like The End of the Affair, where he focuses on the topic of the traumatic impact of, on a non-believer of a miracle. Like in the end of the affair, also in one drama, you have a total non-believer who is then totally shocked, shattered when he or she, you maybe saw the movie with Ray Fiennes and Julian Moore and so on, like an atheist encountering a miracle. And this, but I think that he's too naive here, Graham Greene. I think that the true example would be the one, I don't agree with him politically, I don't even like him, but it's an interesting film, namely, did you see Steve, with Steve Martin, Leap of Faith, 
where you have a fake con artist of uh, this miracle uh, healer and so on and so on, and then he's, he's doing tricks and so on, cheating with his magic healings, but at the end he does it and he's totally shattered. He discovers that he really can do a miracle and he's totally shattered. I think that the greatest shock for a religious person is to discover that it really works. And this is how today it functions. And it's the same with psychoanalysts. Many of my psychoanalytic friends are by nature skeptical. And from time to time, they are shocked. They tell me, my God, but it really works, this interpretation. But the whole life should be, should be this, no? So, uh, so uh, this is what interests me. Belief, it is impossible to do it directly. Somehow we have to take a distance, as it were, take a distance towards it. Uh, so, now let me make a point clear here. My thesis is not what nobody really believes today and so on and so on. It's uh, much more complex. I think that just belief is not where we think it is, for example. Let us take some, a thing where you would think there is no belief there. Stalinist communism. I think the underlying structure is deeply religious, not in the stupid superficial sense, communism is a new belief, they believed in paradise on earth, in historical necessity, but it's something else. For example, when you read reports on Stalinist purges, how they justified it, and so on and so on, you always get in Stalinist texts what in theology is referred to as the perspective of final judgment. The idea is today, it may appear confused to you, we are doing horrible things, uh, killing innocent people, but at some point later, when there will be communism, we will be able to look back and to recognize, you know, as if at some point in the future, what would it, there will be kind of a final historical judgment where every event, every act will get its proper place. And I think this perspective is absolutely crucial for Stalinist communism. That's the first thing to say. The second thing, now I want to go into a more tricky water. When we are dealing with beliefs, we should really be careful about what people believe when they say they believe and so on and so on. Namely, the problem I run into is how our Western standard liberal theory of beliefs and meaning, precisely when it tries to understand the cultural other, is usually at its most racist. What I'm referring here to is, for example, the standard theory developed among others, most systematically by Donald Davidson, the standard theory according to which human acts are rational, intentional that they are accountable in the term of beliefs and desires of the agent. You know, to simplify, the idea is you do something because you have, first you desire something and then you have certain beliefs about reality. You think if I do this, the result will be what I desire. Now this may appear almost a self-evident theory, but if you apply it, this theory to so-called so-called suicidal terrorist acts, you get a, a totally crazy image. For example, we end up attributing to 
ter fundamentalist terrorists the most ridiculous beliefs, as if the Arab terrorists really mean that they will get the, how many of them, 70 or 400 virgins waiting for them in paradise, whatever, and so on, and so on. Uh, I think that, again, this is not, this is not the structure. This is not the structure. You don't, have to be, you don't have to believe. This very theory, which again is supposed to understand the other, like if we are to understand the terrorists, we should look at their structure of beliefs, ends up making them ridiculous idiots. Let me give you an extreme example here. Recently I read a book about the Korean War. And then I found there a wonderful quote from an official North Korea communist propaganda from 52, uh, describing one great hero and how he died for fatherland. Here is literally the quote. The hero, Kang Ho Jung, was seriously wounded in both arms and both legs in the Kamak Hill battle. So, be attentive here. He couldn't move neither legs nor arms, totally. So he rolled into the midst of the enemy with a hand grenade in his mouth and wiped them out, shouting, my arms and legs were broken. Imagine, shouting, but with a... <laughs> my arms and legs are broken, but on the contrary, my spirit, retaliatory spirit against you imperialist scoundrels is now a thousand times stronger. I will show the unbending fighting will of a member of the Workers' Party of Korea and unflinching will firmly pledge to the party and our beloved leader, Kim Il-sung. Now, okay, it's easy to make fun of this. It's non-realistic. The guy, first, how could he even, uh, how could he put the bomb, the bomb roll and make this long official proclamation and so on and so on. Uh, however, uh, what if we are reading this in a wrong way? What if the mistake here is the same as that of the anthropologists who impute to so-called primitive aboriginals uh, who celebrate some animal as their ancestor, the belief that they are really descended from that animal? My proposal is why not read this passage, the scene that I described, which effectively sounds operatic, like a scene from the opera in its ridiculous pathetic character. Why not read it in a way similar to listening to, for example, Act 3 of Richard Wagner's opera Tristan und Isolde, where, I mean, it's easy to laugh at the other, but what happens in Act 3 of Tristan is in a way more impossible and ridiculous. If you know it, Tristan is mortally wounded and then is singing an extremely difficult aria, aria much longer than this proclamation. It lasts about 50 minutes, no? So, okay. We all know that's not meant, but what if this scene is meant in the same way? Imagine this scene as an, as an operatic scene, as if an, an aria sang. In other words, uh, uh, if you were to ask a Korean, North Korean guy, but do you really think this happened? He would probably say, are you stupid? Of course not. This is just meant to articulate our will to fight and blah, blah, blah. No? And so, again, belief is not, in this sense, literally a belief. 
This is not how it functions, and I claim especially with so-called fundamentalists. Don't make idiots of them. Another problem that I have with so-called fundamentalism is that it generated in our media, in our reaction, uh, another great misunderstanding. I don't think that the so-called fundamentalist Islamic terror is grounded in the terrorists' conviction of their superiority and in their desire to safeguard their cultural, religious identity from the onslaught of global consumerist civilization and so on and so on. I think that now I will say something politically incorrect and very brutal that the problem with so-called, so-called, I have problems with these designations, fundamentalist terrorists is not that we consider them inferior to us, but rather that they themselves secretly consider themselves inferior. Like obviously, if you read Hitler's Mein Kampf, it's obvious that Hitler's problem is that he has problems with Jews, he considers himself inferior. Which is why our condescending, politically correct assurances that we feel no superiority towards them only makes them more furious and feeds their ressentiment. The problem is not cultural difference, but the opposite fact that the fundamentalists are already like us, that they secretly already internalize our standards and measure themselves by them. And this clearly goes also for, for example, Dalai Lama, who justifies the Tibetan Buddhism in Western terms of the pursuit of happiness, the avoidance of pain, and so on and so on. So paradoxically, I think what the fundamentalists really lack is precisely a dose of true racist conviction into their own superiority, if you want. Uh, another thing that should be stressed here, where I think uh, uh, the reference to uh, terrorism is crucial, is that uh, we should totally abandon this opposition which is forced on us, as if in ethics we should oppose those who are ready to sacrifice themselves for a larger common good and utilitarians, hedonists, and so on and so on. We can learn here a lot, I think, already from uh, the good old Rousseau, who, Rousseau who uh, distinguished clearly between simple egotism and the pathological amour propre, self-love. His idea is that there is nothing bad in simple egotism, caring for yourself, for your pleasures. The result is always good, and it's even easy to generate morality out of this. The problem of evil is not hedonism, it's not I want to have a good time. As, as he does it in a very uh, precise way, Rousseau, he point, he demonstrates how uh, the problem is when uh, destroying the enemy, the problem is that of envy, when destroying the enemy, preventing the other to enjoy becomes for you more important than your own enjoyment. When, and when you get caught into the logic of better to ruin others' enjoyment than for me to enjoy. So the point is here that the logic of envy it has nothing to do with, with uh, hedonism and all this stuff. Uh, which is why, now I will make a more concrete statement here, which is why I think John Rawls' theory of justice is catastrophically wrong. It works only on the assumption that people are simply egotists. It works only if you suspend envy and uh, ressentiment. That is to say, you know probably Rawls' model of a just society where social inequalities are tolerated only insofar as they are 
based on natural inequalities, which are considered contingent, not marriage, and you know this uh, uh, Rolsian test that uh, you should, uh, this the veil of ignorance test. No, you should, uh, uh, you should make a judgment without knowing what is your position, or to directly formulate the result, certain inequalities, some people earning more and so on, should be tolerated only if they help also the lowest, the poorest, the, the lowest. So that in this way you can justify it. Okay, you can earn more or whatever than others, but also the lowest one will profit, will profit from it. It sounds very reasonable. So first we only get inequalities which are justified by helping also the poorest, the lowest on the, so in social hierarchy. And point two, this these privileges of some people being richer and so on are not justified through some old hierarchies or whatever, but only in your natural capacities. How would this work in real life? I think it would have meant a total catastrophe. Why? Uh, because uh, imagine that you are the, the, the lowest, the poor one. You would, of course, be frustrated the others have more than you. But you would even be deprived of the right to protest because it would be clear that you are less than the others because of your natural inabilities. And not only this, but the other are, others are richer than you, basically in order to help you. I claim that the moment you introduce envy, the logic of envy, it explodes. It's a formula for, for disaster. Uh, in other words, I think that, I don't know, probably you have the same stories, but the logic of desire, which is the logic of envy, is totally ignored here. Like, there is uh, an anecdote in my own country, in Slovenia, about a farmer, a peasant, who is given a choice by a good witch or a magician. He will, the, magi the god, whatever, all-powerful person, will give him, the peasant, one cow, and to his neighbor two cows, or take from him one cow and from his neighbor he will take two cows. Of course, the peasant immediately chooses the second option. <laughs> or, in Slovenia we have even a more morbid version. Uh, the witch or the magician tells the, the farmer, I will do to you whatever you want, but I warn you, I will do it twice to your neighbor. You know what's immediately the farmer's response? Take one of my eyes and you will take both the neighbor and so on and so on. What's the lesson of this? Now, don't misunderstand me. I hate Friedrich Hayek. But here he was right, where he emphasized how it is much easier to accept inequalities if one can claim that they result from an impersonal blind force. So, Hayek claims, the good thing about irrationality of the market success or failure in capitalism, you know, this idea that it's not really you are intelligent, whatever. There is always an element of contingency of chance who fails, who succeeds on the market, is that it allows me precisely to perceive my failure or success as basically undeserved, contingent. So the fact that capitalism is not just, far from being something which makes it more intolerable, is precisely what makes it palpable for the majority. Because can you imagine what horrible the situation would be for you if you would have to accept that 
I fail because I am an idiot or whatever. But if I say, okay, basically it's not my fault, it's ma mar market forces are uh, impenetrable, crazy, it makes it much easier to swallow it. So that's, I think, nonetheless a nice dialectical observation, how the very injustice, capitalism is accepted by people not because it's just. No, those who are more intelligent, blah, 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 succeed. If it were to be just, it would explode long ago. What makes it palpable is its very injustice and that we know that it's unjust. In this sense, we can, as it were, accept our own failure as something which is not our own, uh, not our own responsibility. So much about this. Now, let me return to belief. Uh, what is the, the, the basic, what's then the structure of belief? It's never, if it's never clear what we believe, how it functions, and so on and so on. Now we come to the chicken. Uh, it's an old story, you know it, I will just give a new twist to it. You know this old classical joke uh, about a man who believes himself to be a grain of corn, seed, whatever. He is taken to the mental institution where doctors do their best to finally convince him that he is not a grain but a man. However, when he is cured, convinced that he is not a grain but a man, and allowed to leave the hospital, he immediately comes back trembling, scared. There is a chicken outside the door and he is afraid that the chicken will eat him. The doctor says, of course, dear fellow, you know very well that you are not a grain but a man. Of course I know that, replies the patient, but does the chicken know? <laughs> Now uh, you will say that's a joke. No, I will try to prove it now in the second part of that this is exactly how it works. For example, in this is what psychoanalysis is about. It's easy to convince you that uh, you know, your, your symptoms are just effects of your repressed traumas and so on and so on. But the problem is to convince the unconscious, which is, as it were, uh, the chicken in you. How does this work even with Marxism? I think that this is what Marx was, which is why I think Marx sh should still be read. This is what Marx was targeting. Precisely, I claim this paradox of belief is what Marx was targeting in his good old-fashioned, but I think we should return to it, theory of so-called commodity fetishism. Let me quote you the first sentence or the first two sentences of this uh, subdivision four of the chapter one of Capital, the fetishism of the commodity and its secret. Quote, a commodity appears at first sight an extremely obvious trivial thing, but its analysis brings out that it is a very strange thing, abounding in metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. Everybody reads this passage, but are you aware how strange it is? What Marx does here is exactly the opposite of what one would expect from, a, well, precisely, a Marxist social critic. The idea is you take a mystified ideological edifice, religious uh, fantasy, whatever, and you try to reduce it to real-life phenomena, economic, political processes. You try to show how even these most mystical, sublime phenomena are generated by the real-life struggles, production, and so on. That's the usual idea of critique of ideology, no? To show how ideological phenomena are generated by real life. But Marx is saying here almost the opposite. 
that the problem is not to reduce sublime phenomena to ordinary reality. The problem is to become aware of the, as it were, metaphysical sub subtleties and theological niceties, of the theological dimension of what appears to us as ordinary reality itself. This is for Marx commodity, commodity fetishism. Commodity fetishism is not you think you are dealing with something mystical, commodity, whatever, but in reality, as we put it, commodity is just an ordinary object, uh, part of social exchange, and so on and so on. You think you are dealing with an ordinary object, but in reality, no, that's the whole problem, in what kind of reality there is this theological aspect of commodity. So, uh, that's my formula. When let us say a critical Marxist encounters a bourgeois subject immersed in commodity fetishism. The Marxist reproach to the bourgeois subject is not a commodity may seem to you to be a magical object endowed with special powers, but it really is just a reified expression of relations between people. The actual Marxist reproach is rather, you may think that the commodity appears to you as a simple embodiment of social relations. That, for example, money is just a kind of voucher entitling you to a part of social product. But this is not how things really seem to you. In your social reality, by means of your participation in social exchange, you bear witness to the uncanny fact that a commodity appears to you as a magical object endowed with social powers. In other words, uh, sorry, to go back. What I, just to explain this, to make it absolutely clear. So we have three levels, not two. We don't simply have, this is my central point, we don't simply have reality and illusion, illusory beliefs. It's not that in reality a commodity is a social product, some object becomes a commodity because of its role in social exchange, but we idiots are victims of commodity fetishism and thinks this is an inherent value, there is something magic in a commodity or money. No, the paradox is much nicer in Marx. Commodity is in reality just an ordinary object who functions as money, commodity, because of social relations. And this is what we think also. So our, what we think is close to reality, if you want. But the side of commodity fetishism is not our beliefs, it's our social reality itself. We act as if we embody our belief in act in our social exchange. We, you know, it's a little bit the same as, let us say your father is an idiot. Or no, let's, this is too obvious example. Let, let us take anti-Semitism, our late capitalist liberal anti-Semitism. Jews are people like others. And we think they are. But nonetheless, when you encounter a Jew, most of us, but not only a Jew, it, you can replace Jews with all other races and so on and so on, whenever there is a racism, uh, you, you treat them in your social exchange itself, your anti-Semitic or other racist prejudices are embodied. So you got the point. In the, when Marx defines uh, ideology as, sie wissen das nicht, aber sie tun es, they don't know it, but still they are doing it. It doesn't mean the stupidity of, they don't know what they are doing. They are doing one thing, but they think they misperceive what they are doing. It's, it's that uh, the illusion is not in what people think, but in what they do. 
It's they don't see the illusion that they follow in what they are doing. Let us say, let us say that you are of another race. I, as a white liberal, which I know, but let us say, oh, I like blacks, blah, blah, blah. But then, through some hints, you get my racism. Literally, you see, I don't know, I'm not aware of beliefs which I practice in my acts. That's the site of ideological illusion for Mark, of Marx. You know, you got my point here, how contemporary cynicism uses this gap. Of course, at the level of explicit belief, of our explicit conviction, we can be open, blah, blah, blah. But and at that level, maybe we live in a post-ideological era. What interests me is ideology, which is embodied in material life itself, in social exchanges, and so on and so on. So let me go on. So uh, uh, we, can, uh, we can imagine a Marxist commodity fetishism version of the story about chicken. Uh, a bourgeois subject is visiting a course of Marxism where he is taught about commodity fetishism. However, after the finished course, he comes back to his teacher complaining that he is still the victim of commodity fetishism. The teacher tells him, but you know now how things stand, that commodities are only expressions of social relations, uh, there is nothing magic about them, and then of course the pupil replies, of course I know that but the commodities I'm dealing with do not know it. That's commodity fetishism. Now you will say I'm dreaming. Maybe, but Marx is dreaming with me. Here is a famous quote from Capital when Marx says the same thing, where he invokes this wonderful metaphor of commodities themselves talking to each other. A quote, if commodities could speak, they would say this, our use value may interest men, but it does not belong to us as objects. What does belong to us as objects, however, is our value. Our own intercourse as commodities uh, proves it, and so on and so on. So again, the true task is not to convince people that commodities are just ordinary objects and so on, but as it were, to convince the commodities. That is to say, to get rid of ideology which is embodied in our real social interaction. Not to change the way we speak about commodities, but to change the way commodities speak among themselves, as it were. We can go here even a step further. My Slovene Lacanian party member colleague Alenka Zupancic did this in a book which will appear soon on Hegel and comedy. We can repeat the same story, now I come to my central point of chicken and so on, about God, apropos God himself. Let's imagine an a society of enlightened revolutionary terror where a man is put in prison because he believes in God. With different measures, with uh, kind of uh, ideological brainwashing and so on, uh, he is brought to knowledge that God does not exist. They convince him. Then he is dismissed, but then soon he comes running back and he explains that he is scared of being punished by God. Then the teacher, terrorist teacher, tells him, but what's the problem? We cured you. You know that God doesn't exist. Of course. What's the reply? You can guess it. I know it, but does God know it, that he doesn't exist? Now you will say, I'm joking here. I'm not. Let me now give you my final point. This is why my attachment to Christian legacy, and I speak here as an atheist, it's so passionate. I follow here my preferred Catholic theologist, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who claim that precisely and only in Christianity God does know this. 
at the moment of Father, Father, you know on the cross, why did you forsake me? Here is a wonderful quote from Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Quote, when the world shook and the sun was wiped out of heaven, it was not at the crucifixion, but at the cry from the cross, the cry which confessed that God was forsaken of God. And now let the revolutionaries choose a creed from all the creeds and a God from all the gods of the world, carefully weighing all the gods of inevitable recurrence and of unalterable power. They will not find another God who has himself been in revolt. No, the matter grows too difficult for human speech, but let the atheists themselves choose a God. They will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation. Only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. That's the unique element of Christianity for Chesterton. If you, we take seriously that, Father, why have you forsaken me, and so on, it's not simply men are abandoned by God and so on. It's God himself is for a moment abandoned by God. That is to say, the, the gap between man and God is, as it were, reflected into God himself. And that's the difficult thing to accept, which is why I think that Christianity in this sense is much closer to this kind of atheist position than the standard atheism, which is that of all my friends, the culture atheism, which is, of course, this using the cultural reference. All my Jewish friends say, I ask them, why don't you eat this good pork sausage? You know, I don't believe it, but, you know, it's part of my cultural inheritance and so on and so on. You know, like, you don't do it out of belief. You say, I just follow the, the traditions, the rituals, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, Another way you can detect this, how should I call it, decentered or whatever, uh, decentered belief, belief which socially functions, even when you deny it, uh, uh, would be through displacing this belief onto another. It's incredible how often people are ready, not a problem for them, for them not to believe, but you need to have another people whom you suppose he believes. And that the critical moment is not for you to discover that you don't believe, but to discover that this other who, as it were, believed for you does not believe. And I'm not here uh, making fun. Uh, I mean, this can get extremely serious. For example, maybe you heard about her, uh, she was teaching for some time at a uh, new school, she's still there, Agnes Heller, the Hungarian, Look at people. Uh, she told me a wonderful story. Okay, wonderful. I mean, theoretically wonderful. In reality, terrifying. When she was, I mean, she was in Auschwitz. She has the numbers and so on. She told me that how there, in every cell, every building, there was a myth. You know, most of the people there, the majority of the people were, let's call them survivalists. Totally shattered. You only focused on your survival. You followed certain rules but within these rules you could steal for others and so on. When you lose even this survivalist attitude, you regress to the level of so-called Muslims, Muslims, the living dead. You simply didn't care. But nonetheless, she told me, in every barrack, there was a myth, a belief that never in your barrack, but in the nearby barrack, there was somebody who was not simply only keen on his or her survival, somebody who still 
remained, even in these horrible circumstances, an ethical person. Sacrificed himself, helped others, and so on and so on. And then she told me something interesting, that the most dangerous moment was when you discovered, as unfortunately you almost always did, that this other doesn't exist, that it's a myth. Like you, in some work, in some work group, you meet this other and you discover that, uh, that, that he's like us, just a survivalist. At that point, usually you broke down, you regressed to the level of Muslim, of, of uh, the, 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 ironically, they were called Muslims. This is, okay, Western racism. You know why? Because in the Western imaginary of the early 20th century, Muslims were supposed to be these people totally, totally abandoning themselves in faith, just obeying destiny. You just prayed, prayed and accept everything. And these people who were totally broken, the living dead, they just did like this, they didn't even act. So ironically, nice case of practical racism, they will got mass. So, but the interesting point is that you, you got my point that even in order to be a cruel survivalist, you needed another guy to be, as it were, good for you. You needed to believe, I may be, I may be evil, egotist, because another one is good for me, as it were. If you, you needed that even to support your, to support your, your, your egotist attitude. And it's incredible how often you find this at different levels. For example, I read an interesting research uh, recently about uh, sexual promiscuity, how most of the people who engage in orgies and so on, they can be extremely wild doing, I don't know what, but usually, nonetheless, they always have another one who, as it were, has to remain pure for them. It's usually their children or their, like, I can do with a triple penetration, name it, whatever, but don't touch my son or but don't touch my mother. There is somebody else who has to, who has to, who has to remain uh, pure. So uh, let me go on here. Uh, how then, what's the structure here? the structure of this objectified belief. That's my lesson here. How beliefs today, more than ever, precisely in our cynical, post-ideological, blah, blah, blah era, how beliefs are objectified. You can, as it were, believe without believing. You just practice belief with your acts. There is a wonderful anecdote, maybe known to some of you, about Niels Bohr, you know, the Copenhagen, the guy, who I think was very intelligent, also in theological matters. You know that I think that he provided a perfect answer to your own guy here, Princeton Einstein. No, you know the famous, God doesn't play dice. But you know what Niels Bohr answer to Einstein was? Don't tell God what to do. No, I think it's uh, correct. Okay, there is another, I think even much better anecdote about uh, Niels Bohr. Who, uh, who, uh, he, a friend visited him in a country side house and saw, it was an old farmer house, saw above the entrance the, the horseshoe on the entrance door. I don't know if it's here also, but in Europe this is kind of a super, superstitious object, like it brings luck, you know, if you have a horseshoe. Okay, so the surprised visitor uh, uh, asked uh, Niels Bohr, why do you have that? My God, I thought you were a scientist. Do you really believe in this? You know, Niels Bohr gave a perfect answer. Of course, I'm not an idiot, of course, I do not believe in it. But I have it because I was told that it works also if you don't believe in it. <laughs> that's, 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 that's how it works today. 
we don't believe it, but it works even if you, even if you don't, even if you don't, don't believe it. No. Uh, uh, in other words, uh, this brings us back to my big theological reference: this notion of objectified beliefs to Pascal. I think that uh, Pascal, you know, this Pascalian slogan. Uh, 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 interpreted endlessly by almost all French, but it is as if the entire French Marxism is a version of Pascalian theology. You know, the Pascalian famous, uh, like Pascal is basically the first theorist of Alcoholics Anonymous, this fake it till you make it. That is to say, you don't believe, no problem. Do as if you believe, kneel down, pray, and believe will come by itself. But I think that from today's experience, we should turn around. Pascal. It's more complex. The logic is not kneel down and, uh, and kneel down and you will believe, but kneel down and you will make another belief, another agency or whatever belief for you. That is to say, one can say that uh, uh, the problem is not the truly traumatic thing is not not to believe, but to believe seriously, too much. And I think that what ritual allows you is, as it were, to get rid of your belief. The idea is, are you too haunted by religious experience? Do you really believe? Is it too horrible of you? My God, I really experienced God and so on. Not a problem. Practice a, a ritual and then it will get mechanized and you can think about masturbation, whatever you want. You know, the ritual is doing it for you. It's the same thing as, I don't want to repeat it here, that I immensely like, which I think is one of the greatest 20th century inventions, Kant laughter on TV. You know, where the TV set literally laughs for you. <laughs> now, I may be an idiot here, but for me, it really works in the sense that, let's say in the evening you come home, you are tired as a dog. You put on TV, you get a stupid show, friends, whatever, cheers, <laughs> with uh, Kant laughter. What's the magic? The magic is, I totally disagree with people who claim that the function of Kant laughter, you know, uh, the uh, laughter on uh, uh, TV soundtrack itself, is that to make, as in this idiotic imitation, to make you laugh. It's simply not true. Again, I spoke with some researchers who told me, no, people don't, it doesn't function in this way. No, the problem, the point is precisely that you are rid of even the duty to laugh. <laughs> but, so what's the point? That's the magic. The magic is that, maybe I'm the idiot here, but I'm afraid only I'm not, is that when the show is over, you just stared as an idiot, nonetheless you are relieved as if you laughed. That's the magic of it. The TV laughed for you and it worked as if you did it. And I think that this is even the nice old Catholic manipulation with marriage, like it's too much for you to really love a partner. It's too intense. It's unbearable. You know how difficult it is truly to be in love, like it ruins your life, it's a catastrophe, I mean. <laughs> the days get married, you have a ritual and then you can start to dream, to cheat, whatever, it's, you get the minimum distance of the ritual. Uh, so, uh, oh my God, I have so many other things, but nonetheless, slowly I will conclude it. So again, to conclude, my first big thesis is that this functioning of ideology, where you are even not aware of your own beliefs. That is to say, it is not as in the classical idea we have of ideology. 
you officially believe, follow the blah, 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 but secretly you daydream about, or even you are not aware how secretly you are an atheist, wild desires, and so on and so on. No. Today, I claim the situation is almost the opposite one. We are officially hedonists, we don't care, and so on and so on, because we believe well, not deep in ourselves. I'm not playing this game of deep discovery, because we believe in our acts, we practice beliefs, which is why not only it doesn't hurt the official ideology if you don't explicitly believe. My thesis is much stronger, is that today for an ideology, in order to function, it must, be, it must not be taken serious by its subjects. It's too much. You must have a distance towards it. Which is why, for me, the most elementary ideological statement is the statement but I'm not just a slave of ideology. I'm also a human person. There is something more in me, this, this minimal distance. Where do you find this distance? For example, uh, this is for me one of the signs of ideology at its purest. If you buy a book of a popular author, and you know, on the back side of the cover, you usually get this short description of the author. He published these books, blah, blah, blah. And then to humanize the author, did you notice it? You have usually then two, three lines about some private life. In her, I, now I read a detective novel, she's the best for me, of Patricia Highsmith, and it said at the end, in her free time, Miss Highsmith is gardening and taking care of her cats. You know, this, <laughs> this is ideology, this signal. So I tried to do with my last book, the publisher rejected it, uh, to twist this to just to shock people, to add, in his free time, Professor Zizek is uh, surfing, uh, surfing, surfing the internet for child pornography and teaching, his, <laughs> and teaching his son to pull out legs of spiders or something like this. Just, just to show it how this is the falsity itself. This, this distance, this distance is it. Okay, now the final twist, the final question. If we have this cynical functioning of ideology and so on and so on, but what about so-called fundamentalism then. Isn't nonetheless then fundamentalism, so-called fundamentalism, a good thing in the sense of, my God, they, they at least really believe? No. Why not? Let me be very precise here. Uh, I think that fundamentalism and the utmost postmodern cynicism share something. What I call the decline of the symbolic function. What for me is the symbolic function is that you take a fiction seriously. In the sense of, do you know this old story? I think it was first, you find it in some uh, Marivaux comedy, then it's quoted by, by Kant and later this, and then it's even later you find the version with Marx Brothers, this famous anecdote of husband unexpectedly returning home. He finds his wife in bed with another Man and the wife said, now you have to choose. If you truly love, there is nobody here. If you truly love me, you will believe my words, not your eyes. <laughs> uh, this is what we do. This minimum is the minimum of civilization. Uh, that even if you know, belief is always an, a minimally absurd belief. Now, okay, this is a ridiculous example, but let me give you a much more beautiful, tragic example most kitschy one almost. You know the diaries of Anna Frank. There is a famous passage there where she says, in spite of all the horrors that the Germans are doing, 
I still believe in essential divine goodness of every human person. This is a clear act of some kind of absurd wager. Belief has all, always the moment of this crazy decision, crazy counterfactual wager. In spite of all the evidence, I believe it. And I think this kind of belief should be reasserted even today. Isn't the whole topic, insofar as we accept it, it's more problematic, of human rights, human equality. It's this kind of a crazy wager. In spite of all the differences that I see, I accept it as a wager. Humans are fundamentally uh, dignified. This is, this is an article of faith, and I don't think it's anything ideological about it. What I'm claiming is that the cynical functioning of ideology, where you no longer have this faith in, in symbolic beliefs, where you simply instrumentalize ideology, and with fundamentalists, they do the same. For both of them, they no longer trust this belief. Of course, it's obvious in what sense cynics don't believe. They simply don't believe, even if they practice beliefs. They don't believe, that's clear. But now you will tell me, but what about fundamentalists? Ah, a true fundamentalist, I think, literally does not believe. In what sense? No, it's not any big paradox. What I'm aiming at here is the difference between belief and knowledge. Uh, namely, what gave me this idea is I met some of the so-called fundamentalists, and what shocked me is with what is they, the more they are fundamentalists, the more they like modern sciences, uh, cyberspace, and so on and so on. Why? Because uh, for them, now I will try to be as clear as possible, for an authentic Christian to say Christ has arisen from death and so on, it's an absurd article of faith. For them, it's a simple fact. They, you know what I mean? They don't treat it as this pathetic, impossible, existential wager. Which is why, for example, you know this very interesting story of the Turin Shroud. You know, it was allegedly proven that it is false in 14th century. Now those who claim it's true have a have another version that nonetheless there are some problems with that atomic decay, how they may, but uh, I think that a true Christian should be horrified at the prospect that this may, may turn out to be true. Because my God, if it really is Christ's blood there, you have a nightmare perspective, it's like the first evil idea that comes to your mind it. Let's look at the DNA then and see who really is the father. No, I mean, let's, let's, then you will probably discover that it's some Arab servant and so on, no, and so, whatever. So it's uh, for them, but it's not only this opportunism, it's rather that they feel in a correct way, Christians, that this article of faith does, is not, it's not a matter in this sense of knowledge. While for fundamentalists, it is simply a matter of knowledge. For them, there is, there is no problem here. State, religious statements are, for them, statements about simple positive facts. They read the Bible literally. This crazy decision of, in spite of all the facts and so on, I choose to believe in human rights, equality, and so on and so on, they don't, they don't have that one, which is why, and I think this is a much more, not only funny, but cr correct critique of so-called fundamentalism. It is not, as people usually claim, that fundamentalism 
poses a threat to secular scientific knowledge and so on and so on. This is the superficial appearance, no other crazy uh, theories of uh, against evolution, blah, blah, blah. No, I think that the fundamental threat that they pose is the threat to believe itself. They are, the, if you want to read a text where really the last traces of true authentic belief disappeared, it's the fundamentalist text. Again, we are in the field of knowledge there. Articles of faith are treated as simple positive knowledge. That's, that's the true danger. And it's a very nice paradoxical situation in a way where those who pretend to be, again, the most religious ones have already betrayed, have already betrayed uh, religion. Okay, what I wanted to do is to, just to report to you into what I wanted to do, but I will cut it short now because I speak uh, One thing I wanted to explore also is the structure of this disavowed mater materialized beliefs, how I think that we have at this level what I'm tempted to call the institutional unconscious, in the sense, not in any mystical Jungian sense of collective unconscious, but a set of implicit presuppositions, desires, beliefs, which are disavowed by an official ideological edifice, but are part of the institutional logic. And here we also enter a very painful domain for some Catholics at least, because for example, I'm more and more convinced that all these cases of pedophilia, pedophilia scandals among the Catholics, prove that there is, this pedophilia is not simply something which happens to Catholics, to Catholic priests as a simple fact of life, in the sense of even if I become a priest, what can I do? I'm still human, so this haunts me and so on and so on. I can even, to be extremely vicious, imagine an ordinary heterosexual guy who becomes a priest and then turns slowly into a pedophilia because it's something in the logic of the, in the logic, it's not the private unconscious, it's the set of unwritten, unwritten obscene rules inscribed into the institution itself. That's one line I wanted to pursue. Another line, which is my favorite philosophical line, I don't have time for it, it's to define this knowledge, this implicit knowledge that we possess without knowing it, if you want, or rather, sorry, now I'm making a mistake, I was criticizing this implicit belief in the Hegelian terms of self-consciousness. Namely, uh, I was surprised reading Hegel's theory of state about how precise Hegel is there. When Hegel says that the, uh, the that state is a uh, that state is a self-consciousness of the people and so on and so on, usually Hegel is read there as kind of a ridiculous spiritualist, implying a kind of a mega spiritual, mystical, spiritual subject, whatever, who runs the show behind. No. What Hegel means is something very materialist there. For Hegel, self-consciousness simply means a refractive registration in the sense of you don't do it, you at the same time register it reflectively as a symbolic act. What do I mean? Let me give you a totally vulgar example. Most of the people who have jeans, wore jeans today, or for example in Slovenia, my countries, uh, many people, now it's fashionable to have uh, Land Rovers and so on and so on. People live in the city and travel mostly from the suburb to the center, but in a Land Rover. 
so they don't need it. So it's in order, as it were, to make a statement. You know what I mean? It's not just a utilitarian fact. Even or precisely when you are dealing with objects which declare themselves as pure utility, it's not fashion, it's just useful, but they already declare their utility. This is for Hegel self-consciousness. It has nothing to do with individual, uh, individual awareness. For Hegel, this means that the state is not just an instrument, but has to register, declare its status through public rituals and so on and so on. And Hegel is here very materialist when he emphasizes that this has nothing to do with people effectively being aware of it. Hegel, in some of his uh, notes, which are only now published to his philosophy of right, evokes an example of a state parade, for example, state ritual, where even if all the individuals are thinking about their private affairs, whatever, not aware, still, the ritual as such is self-consciousness of the state. In this sense, to give you an idea, in the Hegelian sense, the symptom is the subject's self-consciousness. Let us say I'm co convinced in something, whatever. But then, through a symptom, I undermine it. This, let's just say I think I love my wife, but I produce a symptom which embodies my secret disavowed, I'm not aware of it, hatred, whatever, of my wife. Uh, this symptom is, in the Hegelian sense, the moment of my self-consciousness. In this sense, you know what I mean, we have, again, a certain knowledge of which I'm not aware, but which exists out there, exists out there uh, objectively. So, it, all these paradoxes, I think, again, are crucial for how ideology functions today. The reason I engaged in this way is to, again, to make you skeptical about this easy uh, disposition of ideological positions today where as if the opposition is between, I don't know, fundamentalist belief or liberal skepticism, uh, hedonism, and so on and so on. It's not like this. I think that it's not like this, that in a way, precisely cynics or hedonists are usually in their practice itself believers. So again, I think that, that this strange category of belief which exists objectified in our acts, even if we publicly mock it, make fun of it, and so on and so on, it's the key to analyze today's society, the key to how ideolo ideology functions in a post-ideological era. I'm sorry if I was too long, but on the other hand, I'm not sorry because that's my nature. Thanks very much. <laughs>
other That's words, it was a total confusion or what? Well, no, no, because certain disciplines are highly confused. So it might be providing certain illumination and understanding much better. Absolutely. But it also is, is a way of traversing various publics that your mode of presentation, the very genre itself, brings us in and lures us in and summons us in to your discourse so that it's both academic but it's also journalistic, it's also popular culture, it's also high culture, it's anecdotal, it's, it's full of jokes, but there's a deep sense of the comic that's operating. But what I want to highlight first and foremost is the philosophical framework, and it has so much to do with the story about the chicken, that what I've always loved about your is that you are unabashedly uh, old-fashioned in your philosophical orientation. And what I mean by that is that in a moment in which, especially on the left, people are post-Marxist and post-modern and post-psychoanalytic, you are modern to the core. But when, he, when he writes phrases like, German idealism is the unsurpassable horizon of our philosophical experience. So from Kant to Hegel, that's where the stuff, the good stuff actually resides. You can play footsie with various postmodernist writers, but when you want substance, you're going to have to go back to the German idealist. What were the German idealists dealing with? Well, Let's just look briefly at your favorite text, I think, or one of your favorite texts, the great text of 1809, of Schelling's uh, treatise, on The Essence of Human Freedom. That's the text that Heidegger says shattered Hegel's logic before Hegel published the text, undermined the older form of German idealism. Why? Precisely because like the chicken in us, it highlights the traumatic core of the modern subject. And in many ways, what I see in your work is the centrality of the catastrophic, the monstrous, and the traumatic. And even Jacques Lacan is a kind of uh, means by which you force us to come to terms with the traumatic. And postmodernist moves of cynicism and relativism and nihilism and so forth are simply modes of evasion that somehow don't want us to come to terms with that traumatic core. And what's distinctive about that text of 1809 is not only the text was written at a moment in which his wife was dying, Caroline, mm -hmm. who was the wife of August Schlegel, who he had seduced after having engaged, been engaged to her daughter. And do you know, very leftist politically. Yeah. After her death, Schelling turned reactionary That's only. True. That's true. That's absolutely right. But I mean, I, and I say this because it's a way of trying to historicize and, and concretize what we're talking about. Because what this text is fundamentally about is what are the ways in which we talk about the traumatic, the catastrophic, the monstrous, be it in terms of our individual psyche or be it in terms of our culture and larger civilization. I think it's no accident that the text that I would highly recommend to each and every one of you called The Fragile Absolute. Why is the Christian legacy worth fighting for? You various references in some ways in the, in the text. And he didn't get a chance to read the whole text because he gave me a slightly different text, which I appreciate because it's, it's just so uh, uh, 
creative. You can see your mind forever moving, building on what, what building on what I read. But in that particular text, what I also saw is how easy it is to settle for trite formulations that somehow don't somehow don't force us, don't compel us to wrestle, wrestle with these very, very dark centers inside of ourselves and inside of our, our society. Now, now, what is the significance of this? Well, one is, is that one has to move backwards in order to move forward. That is to say, if we're going to go back to wrestling with the old problematic of German idealism, what does it really mean to be Homeless. What does it mean to acknowledge the ineradicability of the non-rational? What if reality and being itself is impenetrable? What does it mean to actually confront the fact of the intractability of the unfathomable? Is that just empty rhetoric? Not at all. It means the fact that somehow We've got to either learn how to confront and cope with the traumatic or we will forever remain on the surfaces. And the move toward the 19th century, toward Schelling, toward German idealism, toward wrestling with forms of alienation and the traumatic and the catastrophic go hand in hand with the return to Mars. Not in any simplistic way. You can see the reading itself is sophisticated. But all the postmodernist talks, the downplay class, the downplay empire, are similar modes of evasion because we don't want to deal with the traumatic core at the very center of our own lives and civilization. And we in America have a very different religious profile, as you know. 96% of the fellow citizens in this country, my fellow citizens in this country, believe in God. 80% believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 51% talk on intimate terms with God at least four times a week. And you say, well, does it cut deep? Is it just objectified? Are the fundamentalists in some way simply on the surface and not, a, and not a, a, enacting any kind of authentic conviction? Well, I don't know. When you look at the debate about abortion, you see some pretty deep intensity of people who really believe and, in fact, are willing to sacrifice. In fact, they're willing to sometimes confront their enemies, sometimes trash their enemies. Very intense. And there's a sense in which part of the liberal project is just to lower the temperature so that they don't kill each other. Because they're not at each other's throat in a certain sense. But at the same time, you see, that the, the, the religiosity that you're talking about, so much of it market-driven, as it were, so much of it obsessed with uh, upward mobility, so much of it not really confronting the deeper traumatic core at the very beginning of this nation and, 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 and given its enactment thereafter, does, I think, provide some, some ground for, for what you're saying. I think my question to you in part would be, what would be an example, a constructive, positive, positive example of the kind of belief that you would want to promote? I know that, I know that you, usually it's a certain kind of psychoanalytic practice, and certainly usually it's a certain kind of anti-capitalist practice even sophisticated Marxist praxis. But I would want to hear a bit more about how that is enacted, where you see it at work in our society, in Slovenia, in Europe, or, or what have you. Uh, so that would be one question. Uh, the second question I want to raise would be the question about the, uh, 
about that line on the cross, though, about my God, my God, yes. why has I forsaken me? Now, now you know that, that that's Mark 15, 34, and it echoes the first verse of Psalm 22, uh, that Judaism already has within it a very, very rich tradition of the dormant God, the sleeping God, the absent God, uh, the God that seems to be far removed. In fact, when you look further up, for the longer that verse, it says, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me? Why is thou so far from my call for help, my cry for help? Why does one not hear my word soaring? Now, you see, that kind of talk, one does find in Pascal, the day of That's very different atheistic talk. See, that's not Psalm, that's not Psalms 14 chapter. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a very, very different level of discourse. And so the question becomes whether Chesterton is misleading you in saying this is an atheistic moment as opposed to very much like the 32nd chapter of Genesis, like Jacob wrestling in the darkness, not knowing what way to go, enacting a level of angst which is genuine but yet not in any way atheistic. And if that's true, then maybe the atheistic moment is more what Nietzsche thought, which is Saturday after Good Friday, the death itself, not the words on the cross, but the death itself of that God on the cross, and not knowing that Easter Sunday's coming. You know, the terrain of Samuel Beckett, the waiting for Godot and so forth. Now, if that's true, then we might then have to revise what you said about this distinctive feature of the Christian faith somehow being a, a religion in which the atheistic moment is uttered by the God and God's self. And it might actually be very close to um, your own hero, my hero in some ways too, Shelley. You're talking about when you actually look at the life of God, what was it about the emergence of God, that the emergence of man in the life of God that seems to be grounded on a certain kind of derangement and catastrophe in which things are out of joint, almost echoes of Hamlet here, and haven't been, in, and haven't been harmonic since. And that's a very different, uh, it seems to me to, to, to reside. I think it cuts much deeper than the, the Chesterton-like uh, mood that I see you uh, following just on, on, this, on, the, on, the, on the second point uh, here. And let me just end, and I want to say, uh, open this up for questions and so forth. But see, what I, what, what I, what, when I read you and listen to you and say, how fascinating it is to see someone philosophically old-fashioned and politically revolutionary and culturally so playful and personally so charismatic uh, and having significant impact here and around the world. I mean, that's a very rare kind of moment. In the sense in which it would be fascinating to engage in a uh, Zizekian analysis of Jesus' praxis uh, and try to understand the emergence of your own discourse and practice at this particular moment, and what kinds of silences and what kinds of um, uh, insights uh, can be called from what you're doing. But that's a much larger question, but I just throw that out before we open it up. Okay, I will try. Yes, yes, jump, jump right in. No, uh, no I'm a, do we applaud to you also? I think you deserve
uh, I'm really grateful. The only problem I have is that my God, to answer you, you know, another. Thanks, I will just try to mark some. First, I deeply agree with what you said about uh, this moment of madness, monstrous. And here, hmm. it's a much more detailed polemics. I don't, cannot go now into technical details, but in the big debate, you know, about cogito history of madness between Foucault and Derrida. Mm. In spite of all the extreme finesse of Foucault's reading, I basically think that Derrida was right there in detecting a kind of a trans-historical moment of madness in the very core of subjectivity in Cogito, mm. Mm. Cartesian Cogito himself. And here we come to what you mentioned, because already in Kant, but later in Fichte, in Schelling, in Hegel, this explodes again. I think the best sign, index, of the shift from enlightenment to German idealism is the change, fundamental change in the metaphor for the subject. For in enlightenment, the subject is the light of reason, whatever. And you are, when you are haunted by darkness, darkness tries to invade into you from the outside. But with German idealism, with Schelling and Hegel explicitly, they both refer to that mystical langu language, night of the world, Night, darkness is the term for the very excessive, crazy uh, uh, core of subjectivity. And here, not only Schelling, but Hegel should be reread the lesser known Hegel. For example, if you look at Hegel's encyclopedia, third part, philosophy of spirit, things that almost nobody reads, like the very beginning anthropology, where Hegel tries to develop how human mind emerges out of this uh, almost uh, out of this immersion into animal feeling and so on he he has there wonderful 20 pages of notes reconstructed afterwards from his improvisations at uh, his lecture course uh, about how madness is inherent there and how the whole then of of civilized mind language is a desperate attempt to contain this madness. We don't have time to go into this. What you mentioned about historicizing and so on. May I make a brief remark which always fascinated me. What I found uh, uh, always so fascinating with so-called deconstructionist and so on is how selective I, they are in their historicizing. Like, for example, Wagner Nietzsche. Wagner Richard Wagner is over-historicized, you know. You look at Parsifal, of course, the wound is, uh, uh, is, uh, is historically decoded as syphilis. Every statement of Wagner is put in context to prove Wagner, Hitler, and so on. But then we get to Nietzsche, and it's unbelievable how the way postmodernists like Nietzsche redeem Nietzsche is by... To I mean, we tend to forget that when Nietzsche talked about master-slave, are, it totally disappeared from our view how deeply involved Nietzsche was in political happenings of his day with, to put it clearly, very reactionary political attitudes. For example, the nightmare which haunted Nietzsche was the Paris Commune. This was for him the ultimate slave rebellion. He even believed the rumor which afterwards proved false that, that the rebels of Paris Commune are burning Louvre or whatever. That was, so again, it's interesting how if you, for example, Deleuze and so on, uh, Nietzsche is totally 
non I mean, with all others, you know, you look at every reference to the historical context to, to prove whatever needs Okay, but we don't have time for this. Let's go to, uh, to that moment. I'm so sorry we don't have time to go more into it. You know, uh, my paradox would be the following one, and we agree here more than it may appear. When I say atheism, paradoxic, what I try to assert is, and we'll try to be precise here, atheism as a moment in divine life itself. What I'm totally opposed to is this simplistic, stupid Feuerbach reading of Christianity as the incarnation of Christ means that really God becomes man, but in this stupid sense that, you know, uh, humanity is the truth of God, we just have to accept that that God was our fantasy and so on. I totally, I, tot I agree with you, I totally reject it. What I found so fascinating in this story, Father, have you forsaken me and so on, okay, you may find it before, I know all these references, but again, the point is that God is saying it here. And I had three years ago an interesting debate in Vienna with some bishops even, and I asked them a simple, stupid, vulgar question. I like these stupid questions which are embarrassing. When Christ says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Is he bluffing or does he mean it seriously? <laughs> if he is bluffing, that is to say secretly he knows, that's only the stage show to impress the humans, I will join my dad <laughs> happily there. If he knows this and he's just bluffing, then it's a fake. We are in Gnosticism and so on. But if it's serious, then literally for a moment, God is lost for himself, like, you know, there is kind of a split in God, which is God, you know, then the consequences are radical here. And uh, here, uh, what, in, here I attempt to agree, this is the book that I'm writing now, purely theological book, Hegel Christianity, I, my starting point is a wonderful slip of tongue mistake by Hegel. You know, the, what is the distinction between uh, what was the theological cause, superficially at least, which uh, triggered the, in fourth century or when fifth later, the, 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 the split between uh, Orthodox Eastern Church and Western Christianity? Is this, how do you call it, the question of the Son and the Holy Spirit? No? For, for the Orthodox, who, who, who is, where does the Holy Spirit originate from? For the Orthodox, it's only from the Father. Both Son and Father, em sorry, both Son and Holy Spirit emanate only from the Father. For Western Christians, it's from Father and Son together. The East wanted the monoabsolute, as they put it, the theologists, to maintain the absolute monarchy of the Father. Now Hegel does something incredible, it's a truly Freudian slip. When he reports on this, he makes a mistake, he says that the distinction is that for the Orthodox, the Holy Spirit originates from Father and Son, and for us in the West, only from the Son. I agree with Hegel, that's my point. I, my reading is that nonetheless Hegel is right when the point is what dies on the cross. Hegel's thesis is not the Son. It's not that God's representative dies, and that what dies on the cross is Father himself. It's not simply that uh, this would be the pagan reading, and if you accept this reading, then Christianity is just another of these old, boring, Osiris, stupid stories. From time to time, God sends a messenger. This messenger dies, returns, comes again. This, 
Cristality is not this, it's a cut, one-time event. And what dies is the old God himself. And which is why we have the Holy Spirit, which is something totally unique. So again, I agree with you, we don't have that. Okay, speaking about now, uh, when you mention these jokes and so on, let me tell you a detail. I'm here very personal, at two levels. First, recently a wonderful book was published with, okay, at least it's good as a collection, Kierkegaard and Humor. Hmm. Where they wonder how for Kierkegaard also humor was crucial, not in the simple sense you have to be popular and uh, to introduce Christianity, blah, blah, but Kierkegaard has this tremendous vision of Christianity as a comedy. Not comedy in the simple sense of Dante, Divina Commedia, comedy is what ends well, but in a more radical sense that incarnation, embodiment, it's a comical event. Kierkegaard has this wonderful idea that imagine uh, fanfare king is coming and then, you know, this stupid elementary comical scene. And then instead of a king entering, when, when, when trumpets announce it, people looking, a small dog enters, no? Kierkegaard says, my God, this is incarnation. You expect a big God, you get an ordinary guy there. That this gap between Christ as the poor ordinary guy and divinity, it's a comical gap. And I think this is what reactionary fundamentalists miss. The problem for me with Mel Gibson's passion is that he misses the joke of Christianity, <laughs> which is why it's a pagan film, I think. Okay, another thing is that, of course, it's the greatest monument to, to Southern California, Sadomaso gay community, no, but that's another story. No? Okay, but what I'm saying is that another very personal moment here for me about jokes is that it's precisely my own political experience. In ex-Yugoslavia, you know, the terrible civil war in the first half of the 90s, you remember, my God, 300,000 people killed in Europe where people, I don't know why, didn't expect it as if Europeans are not even worse, no? Uh, but what I'm saying is that what traumatized me is the progressive, absolutely progressive, I claim, role of dirty political racist jokes. In what sense? Uh, in old Yugoslavia, you know, five, six republics, nations, ethnic groups, whatever you call them, it was, of course, in the racist imaginary identified with a certain feature. Like we Slovenes were misers, Montenegro people were lazy, uh, Bosnians were this kind of a cunning, sexually obsessed, and so on. And you know how this functioned? It didn't function in a racist way. We were not telling jokes about others. When I met my Serb, Bosnian, Montenegro friends, I told them joke about, it was more a kind of a solidary exchange of obscenities. Like, I tell you my dirty, and this means we are above this for me, disgusting, politically correct, oh, I admire your food, your rituals, this is for me. No, I want to hear the dirty jokes from you, no? And a negative proof of this, incredible, is that uh, in uh, early, from early 80s onwards, when ethnic tensions started to explode, very interesting, these jokes disappeared. This is for me a kind of an absolute negative proof that, that they played, I think, again, they were not racist jokes in the sense of making, it was just, you know, isn't this also your elementary experience? If you meet 
a person of another uh, race, orientation, whatever. As long as you play this game, oh, I respect you, blah, 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 that's for me repressed racism. Only when you go at this level of, what do you put it, exchanging obscenities, you are there. You are truly a friend where you do that. Now you will tell, you will ask me, but how do you know that this is not nonetheless it can be misinterpreted as a racism or scoff, but you have to take that risk. That's the leap of faith, how should I put it, no? And there, are wonderful, there is a wonderful logic of these jokes. For example, we Slovenes are misers in our own perspective. No, the standard Slovene joke, I don't know, is that an old farmer, rich farmer is dying. No, all the family is gathered around him, daughters, grand, grandsons, and he uh, uh, asks, is everybody here? He told me, yes, grandma. So, uh, then the farmer asks, if everybody is here in this room with me, why is then the light on there in the corridor? <laughs> so on and so on. Then Montenegro are lazy people. And they have wonderful, politically correct, dirty jokes like, you know, Montenegro, you must know, is also an earthquake territory. So how does a Montenegro guy masturbate? He digs a hole in the earth, puts his penis in, and waits for the earthquake because he's too, too lazy to... Bosnians are the nicest because Bosnia, ah, with Montenegro you have some very philosophically deep jokes. More interesting about their like, why does a Montenegro guy put as his table, night table, a full and an empty glass of water? Because he's too lazy to think if he will be thirsty or not during the night. So, but you know what's the nice kid? He has to have to mark the non-thirst also an empty glass. This is, this is almost as intelligent as that George Bush one. The, tomorrow the future will look better or what? No, <laughs> but uh, and Bosnians, I prefer them because in a very nice way, Bosnians play with their own image, which is a racist image, but they gladly, totally identify with it, of being this kind of a obsessed with sex in this primitive, cunning way. So there is a wonderful, dirty story, but not too incorrect. You can swallow it. You know, the only thing it's presupposed is you have to know that uh, Beethoven piano kick, everybody knows his composition, for Eliza, for Elise. You know that. Okay, okay. So the story is that now in Bosnia they try to be modern and they have classical music teaching, which is no longer this old learn by heart, blah, blah, but creative, no? So there is a class and the teacher says, now we will talk about Beethoven. Each of you should say uh, first some thought, image, person, and then name a Beethoven composition which fits it, no? So first the girl says, yes, Bambi, forest, what? Pastoral symphony, nature, okay, okay. Then a boy said, uh, uh, war, revolution, heroism, heroica, third symphony. Then the Bosnian guy comes and says, now I have to be vulgar, a prick, long, hard, like this. Why? For Eliza. No, it's so, and so on and so on. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's the spirit. That's, that was for me the reality of this brotherhood celebrated of you. The moment we lost this, it was war. It was war. And this is, I think, what sometimes we miss with this politically correct respect. Like when they, I don't know, they're Native Americans, you have to respect them. I don't care about their holistic attitude to life or whatever. I want to hear their dirty jokes because I, I really, I really like, I like them. No. Okay, just one phrase, the last one. Here I'm very traditional. When you say, what would be this belief? I'm very simple. Take any, here I'm even more traditional than you think. 
Isn't, don't you find this crazy belief in every big emancipatory political project? Like every, wasn't such kind of a crazy belief at work in, for example, Toussaint Louverture, Haiti Revolution, this revolution? Don't you find in all of them, this kind of a, ra in all radical political projects? Here I see a parallel between, uh, this is what interests me in, for example, Paul, the Polinian community of believers. Here I agree with Alain Badiou. The Polinian community of believers living in this emergency state at the end of time, it's not only a theological theory, it is an answer to a very precise historical deadlock. There were two models of, let's say, social logic in Paul's time. On the one hand, Romans, their decadent hedonist individualism, blah, blah, blah. On the empire, on the other hand, Jews, traditional Jews, which were for him, it's kind of a traditional logic here and so on. It's basically the same alternative as today. Either you play this game of individualism, hedonism, or old traditional communities. Mm. And what Paul offered is a third logic of community. Community, be uh, community of believers is something which is neither this individualistic, hedonistic assemblage of individuals, nor the traditional hierarchical, whatever, religious community. It's a different logic, this egalitarian emergency state logic. And maybe we need a little bit mm. of that today. But, but, and that's why you call yourself a Polinian materialist. Yeah, but, but, uh, that but a, again... That's a fair yeah. characterization of, of your position? Yes. Polinian materialist. Yeah, but again, think, yeah, but again what do I mean by materialism? Yes. So yes. things yes. are yes. here, I agree with you, things are here very, very complex in the sense that, you know, all these words, what, what right, does it right, mean to right, be atheist, right. to believe today? Right. I totally agree here with you. I totally agree here with you that it's not as simple as now we proclaim that man is the, the, the secret that allows us to decode God and we do this simple reduction. This doesn't work, of course. Okay, sorry if I was too long again. So I think we have time for uh, a few questions. If you'd like to ask a question, please uh, wait for the microphone. We have uh, some questions or uh, symptomatically obscene jokes. a very good question but an extremely complex one because uh, how should I put it I don't think there is my first point here would have been that I don't think there is a, sorry I don't think there is a symmetry here in the sense that simply those who believe really don't believe those who pretend to be atheists really believe and so on I think the the fundamental the fundamental fact for me is uh, uh, what I'm trying to isolate in this way but I didn't have time to develop it in detail is what is changing today 
in our functioning of belief. I nonetheless claim that something fundamental is changing today in the sense of the, how should I call it, uh, uh, paradoxically, we believe more and less today. What we are less and less able, I claim, is to practice this purely symbolic belief. What do I mean by this? Do you perhaps know the book by, a wonderful book by Paul Vane, Did the Ancient Greeks Believe in Their Mix? Which is uh, uh, their own mix. Uh, and his answer is, in a way, of course, no. All ancient Greeks were not idiots to think if you climb to the top of the Mount Olympus, you will there encounter Zeus and so on. But also, that's crucial, it's wrong to say that Zeus was just for them a metaphor of some force and so on and so on. It's not like that. It's something much more mysterious and I think the closest we can get to it is politeness. Like, for example, I don't know, I meet somebody who is not really my friend and I say, nice to meet you. Now, we, and how are you nice to meet you? We both know that I don't mean it seriously. <laughs> not only this, but did you notice how when I say, how are you? The other is expected to say, well, not only this, but if the other were to take my question literally, it would be even too intrusive. My God, what right does somebody whom I barely know to ask me, how am I? It's none of his business. But the whole of our cultural identity, whatever, resides in the fact that although you don't mean it literally, it's not hypocrisy. The psychotic is perhaps a, the, a definition of psychotic is the one who thinks then it must be hypocrisy. It's possible that what you are saying is literally a lie. I don't really care how are you. Uh, I don't, I'm not really glad to see you. But nonetheless, it's not hypocrisy. You can lie sincerely, how should I put it? And I think that this something fundamental, I think, is changing at this, is changing at this level. So uh, it's not simply uh, believe, non-belief. It's what these terms mean that is changing and so on. I know I didn't answer your question, but I just wanted to give you this elementary background as to what is really, uh, uh, what is really the problem that is haunting me. To put it in another way, uh, uh, did you, you, for example, the, the, the example that I like to evoke always of a, uh, uh, that uh, Edith Wharton story, Age of Innocence. What is, who is innocent there? I'm now as a primitive barbarian uh, talking in the movie terms. It's the Vinona Ryder character, no? That is to say, the young wife. In what sense is she innocent? She is perceived by her husband, who has the affair with Count Olenska, Michelle Pfeiffer. She, she is perceived as the one who is just the naive wife. At the end, as you know, after she died, we learn that she knew it all the time. She just pretended not to know. This is the innocence. It's not the innocence of you don't know. It is you don't, you know but pretend not to know, as it were. Th this is, and I claim that, that this is, uh, this is what is, this is what is disappearing today. And here I am, again, paradoxically, if you want, very, very conservative. This is why I admire novels, especially late novels of Henry James, where you have this kingdom of this kind of a 
faked innocence or whatever, that, that people never state clearly everything is implied and so on and so on and so on. So again, this very fundamental question interests me. How, it's not simply people believe less, but it is changing, what, what does it mean to believe? The question in the back. Oh, yeah, my question, I came down, I guess, uh, because I wanted to ask a good question, and that's not a very good reason to come down, uh, because uh, I was very uh, stimulated by what you said and uh, intellectually curious um, in so many ways it's hard for me to express this, but um, I guess my question is, now, at the moment in which uh, humanity becomes aware of its inner frailness or its fragility or its uh, its tragic kind of a tragic sense of being. It's um, when all the other maybe um, easy answers are stripped away from it. I'm sorry. Um, like what then do we cling to? I mean, couldn't that really be belief itself, that um, darkness there, and in, in a sense it's the only way to express it is utter abandonment. I mean, that's to say, um, what if real belief is not something that can be expressed? It's not something that can, because as soon as it comes out of your mouth, it can be misunderstood or manipulated or destroyed. What if, what if being, what if word and deed are one in action, uh, and you you just live, and that's the way that you, ex, you know, manifest your being, manifest your beliefs. Not as a, not as like a computer program, but as a human being that is, defies any kind of um, systematization or systematic definition. Uh. That's again a nice question, but my God, you're asking me too. Why can't you ask me a simple question where I can answer yes now? Because <laughs> this is so complex, but you know what would be my answer here? I think, I'm not sure, I got your point, but here I, where I feel indebted to Jewish Christian legacy and so on, is that what I didn't get in you is when you say this unity of act and so on, you just leave it. Okay, but in what way more precisely? Because. Uh, for me, how should I put it? The big opposition is, do we adopt the Gnostic way, which is truth is in you. You just have to withdraw into yourself, discover it, unearth it. Or is, to quote X-Files, truth out there. That is to say, it's traumatically encountered. And what I like, okay, I like it's a vulgar term here, where I deeply identify with Jewish Christian legacy is that precisely Truth is something traumatically encountered. Truth is outside. It's not that you look deep in yourself and it's your self-realization and so on and so on. Truth is something you struggle with, which traumatizes you. Truth is something very traumatic. In this okay. sense, no, sorry, just a moment. In this sense, what, what, uh, what fascinated me always is precisely how, uh, how should I put it, uh, one way to act for me, and Kierkegaard was deeply aware of this, is precisely 
to adopt a certain mask, not to be yourself, but quite on the opposite, to adopt a certain mask, a role, and take it more seriously, how to put it, uh, more seriously de than what you are. Right, we have to do that. Everyone has to, has a social persona that they have to pursue. But I'm just saying, what if, uh, there's still desire. I mean, it's like in Ecclesiastes when he says, you know, I had all these palaces, I had slaves, I had, you know, I had uh, my handmaidens and I was fed grapes and I, and I built all these uh, Solomon's uh, pools and, you know, he's living a luscious life and it was all stripped away. It's all vanity. And Wittgenstein uh, uh, said that whenever I open the text and it begins as, this text is wisdom, no matter what creed or, or language is written in, be it Sanskrit, Asian, Hebrew, Arabic, uh, uh, Zulu, I don't know what, but um, if it's labeled wisdom, it's going to start out with vanity, emptiness. And what is in Ecclesiastes is that there's all these paradoxes. He goes through, you know, there's a time for war, time for peace. He goes through all that. But what is left? It's desire. And the desire is for immortality. Desire is for immortality that's expressed through sexual population, you know, through um, teaching, wanting to uh, indoctrinate people. I mean, this is constantly there. That desire has to be addressed. Yeah, but expressed in a mask. Yeah, but uh, again, here I would complicate matters. First, when you say desire is for immortality, maybe, but I am here. Uh, closer to Kierkegaard who claimed that this is the precise meaning of Kierkegaard's sickness unto death. It's that our deepest desire is not, we are afraid of immortality. Immortality is something horrible. We, what, what is easier, easiest for us to accept is, okay, I'm just a piece of dust and so on and so on. The second thing is that uh, when you say wisdom, okay, the first thing that, okay, but with Christianity nonetheless, for me, the crucial fact is grace, faith, grace. But grace comes from outside. Grace is not here I follow Protestantism. Grace, it's not, you know, this bargain with God. Grace comes from outside. It's not you deserve it. It's not, for me, uh, how should put it? Uh, 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 all this, I, I think that there is, the whole Christian legacy, it's totally foreign to this idea, which is now very popular, Okay, for the last few years, we are playing certain social roles. We should learn to drop them and to give the expression to your true self and so on and so on. I think there is a deep truth in at least my experience of how those new agents who pretend to, you know, drop off their false self, uh, false uh, masks and speak as what they really are, Paradoxically, they sound to me as total puppets, as dolls, you know, then they give you this mantra, I'm at peace with myself. They're, no, I, I think that that's, that's the ultimate Christian, Christian legacy, that the ultimate authentic position is that you accept this split, you accept that salvation comes from, comes from outside. It's not self-discovery. It's not self discovery. And what is your right before the very throne of God? Let's let, let a couple of other people speak, okay? We can, we can continue this a little bit later, okay? This, I think, literally, you may disagree. I think this is, uh, I think, I think. Is it, I mean, I don't fucking dance. I don't care. I mean, who cares? I mean, 
okay, we don't have time to go into it. My immediate answer would be that I doubt is this, but I doubt if this really is a Christian position, because the Christian position is that I don't have to go to God, God came to me. You know, that's, that's, that's the ultimate, and it's very difficult to accept it for a Christian. It's, uh, Christ is not a, an image, a messenger of God. Christ was an ordinary, dirty, bed-smelling, unwashed, whatever you want, flesh. individual flesh who was walking there. You don't meet God there in this charismatic. You met God there. You met God there. And I, I think this is how I read then Holy Spirit and so on. We don't need this horrible thing. God is here in the community of believers. I don't think we need all that stuff about this. Uh, 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 I okay, I'll put it in another way. I think that this image of God, you terrified meet God. This is the evil God. This is evil God. This is for me the definition almost of, this is the, this is the God of judgment. This is the God of judgment, the terrorizing God. Okay, but my God, we don't have time. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> One question here. Uh, I think we'll let everyone off and ask you the next question. So I'll be a lot shorter. Um, but I was thinking I was thinking a lot about Camus' mythicism. Sorry, about? About Albert Camus' mythicism. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it seems to me that he sort of provided a solution to the exact dilemma that he posed yeah, yeah. before the dilemma was yeah. posed. You talk about the decline of symbolic politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are two groups of people on either side who, who are, who are who the, the, the perpetrators of the decline of symbolic culture. The fundamentals on one side, and the true atheist postmodernists on the other side, as far as I understand what you said. And in between, there's sort of everyone else who's muddling through, who still believes in the symbolic culture, who still has some sort of remnant of it, which sustains it throughout history, which um, is ancient times, or, or Paleolithic times, people believing in the stuff to an animal. And so essentially, what, what you were saying is that um, we can't take things for, uh, we can't take things absolutely literally. That, that can't be how belief works, that destroys belief. That's what the people on both sides of this. So Camus has one solution, which is to say that we understand that we will never achieve knowledge, but we must eternally try to achieve intelligence to serve man is in the metaphysics. Um, that seems to be one solution. It seems to offer a different solution somehow, which is that we have to go back to what Professor West said about staring traumatic in the face, not not, not talking around it anymore, but looking at it directly. And it seems to me that that's once again returning to taking things at face value, looking at it directly. Um, in other words, if there's a psychotomy between those who, those who perpetrate the decline of symbolic function mm. and those who retain the symbolic function, um, and those who perpetrate the decline are the fundamentalists, aren't you supposed to be trying to make fundamentalists out of all of us? And that's my answer to the question. No, uh, uh, maybe I didn't get correctly your point. I, just to return to the fragment that I think about, about you know, learning to face things and so on and so on. O of course. Everything depends on what exactly do you mean by facing things and so on and so on. Where I'm skeptical about it is, I deeply agree with you, this monster or traumatic kernel and so on, yeah. but nonetheless, I don't think we should fetishize it in, this, in the guise of this typical postmodern myth, which is uh, truth is horrible. There is some central horror, the thing like Edgar Allan Poe's that maelstrom or what or whatever, and then, you know, this Nietzschean problematic of do we dare to face it or not, and so on. I think that what if, what if, how should I put it, you know, it's a little bit the same for me as with male chauvinist approach to women. I think that the ultimate male myth is that 
Beneath this feminine hysteria, masks and so on, there is some primordial radical woman, which can either be this sublime, Goethe-like, ewig weibliche, eternal feminine, or some old, boring, Kali, whatever, mother, and so on. But what if there is nothing? You know what I mean? The thing itself, for me, is a gap. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a gap. It's not, for me, how should I put it, but this now it's too much of a pure philosophy. Uh, again, uh, it's not, uh, uh, how should I put it, uh, I don't believe that uh, all our plurality of symbolic universes and so on are attempts not to confront the thing and so on. No, I think that this thing itself is, in a way, the ultimate myth. That, that, but again, my position here is not the postmodern one, another one which would be there is no ultimate reality, there are just multiple narratives, stories we are telling. No, everything is not just a narrative. But nonetheless, what is more than a narrative, how should I put it? It's not some tremendous traumatic thing there. It's just a certain gap, antagonism, cut, as it were, in the narrative itself. And this is, in a way, how I read, but I don't have time to go into it now, the message of Christianity for me. It's, okay, we start with this experience of Job. Uh, you say Job, the guy who, blah, blah, blah. Who is, incidentally, that's for me an extremely interesting story, because it's usually totally misread. Like, usually Job is perceived as somebody who allowed himself to be screwed by God, but you know, yeah, I accept everything. No, read it. He's protesting all the time, Job. No, he's, I think it's, an, okay, but, but I think that the key to it is to say that what happened to Job, this, am I totally abandoned by God, that this gap that separates me from God is transposed into God himself. That's for me the unheard of things of, think of Christianity. So let me be here very careful. With other religions, when you are abandoned by God, the point is how, through your deification, sacrifice, mystical education, to rejoin God. Christianity has basically a different solution. When I feel totally abandoned by God, how do I rejoin God? Not by miraculously turning the thing around, oh, but suddenly things turn better, but to accept how, at that very point where I'm totally abandoned by God, I identify with Christ who was also abandoned. You know what I mean? That the gap that, the very gap that separates me from God is part of divinity itself. So, you just, as it were, the, how to put it, and here I use very precise Hegelian terms. The problem turns its own solution. And, and I think, at least as far as I know, that this is unique to Christianity. In all, all others have this boring, problematic then, how to rejoin God, but in the very utmost abandonment, you are already, already close to God. And again, I think that this is something unheard of. But when you said about Camille and so on, you know, the problem again that I have there is the problem of maybe I misread Camille, but he is for me a little bit too close to wisdom. And I, there is something in my nature, probably genetically <coughs> determined, in my aversion to wisdom. Wisdom for me is, you know, we will never get the thing, but you must learn to get, you know, this kind of a wisdom of resignation, in the sense of resigning. Even, unfortunately, some of the Lacanians buy this, as if the lesson of psychoanalysis is it, 
the true object of desire is always lost, you must accept symbolic castration, loss. No, I think that the whole point of Christianity for me, New Testament, what are the new... Christianity is for me the religion of anti-wisdom. It's not wisdom. We, all paganism ends up in wisdom. We return to dust, everything goes up and goes down and so on. You know, it's kind of a, ultimately we all lose and so on and so on. But, but I, I don't accept this position of wisdom. Wisdom is for me always, there is for me something disgusting in wisdom. Wisdom is for me best, best exemplified in Proverbs. And Proverbs are for me the ultimate vulgarity. In the sense that anything can be covered and justified by Proverbs. Let us say you have to do something which is risky. You do it, you succeed. What happens? There will be a wise guy who will t tell you, of course, as we say, don't you have, you also must have. Do we, not do we, we have in Slovenia a proverb which says, only those who risk profit, like something like mm. the wisdom. No? Okay. Let us then say that you take the risk and you fail. Again, your wise guy will come and will tell you some version of, we have in Slovenia a wonderful vulgar proverb, you cannot urinate against the wind, like don't take it. You know what I mean? This is wisdom for me. Anything can be justified and so on and so on. I think that, again, the unique thing about Christianity is precisely that it's not this position of wisdom. It's, in a way, how should I put it, all the other pagan ethics are the ethics of cosmic justice. Something introduces an imbalance into the world. The point is then how to restore balance. It's basically a very organic ethics. It's the ethics of you want to be too much, the ethics of fighting the excess. For example, you want to be too much, but tragically you fail. But I think that Christ himself is an excess. The only in Christianity you have this crazy idea, which is for me, in my madness, I read it almost as a kind of a Leninist message, that truth is partial. Pagan ethics is always has this position of to be above differences. No, the idea is, you know, you say this, I say this, truth is holistic, compromise, and so on. Only in Christianity you have basically this idea, no, truth is partial, truth is one-sided, truth is imbalance. The but universe we, must be thrown. But you got that in Judaism before you even get the Christian Judaic breakup. Truth is uh, here we enter a very problematic topic. I'm not ready to go into it now because then I'm either, either accused of being uh, either anti-Semitic or anti-Christian. You always get in trouble here, no? My favorite reply to this and to conclude maybe is another, I quote it in one of my books, dirty joke, which is for me a perfect joke because it's totally ambiguous. And I ask you a question, how do you read it? It's a joke about a rabbi who, who his son spends too much money, attacks him, horrible son, and rabbi turns to God Father, what do I tell me, God, what should I do with my son? Father, God answers, do as I did, write a new testament. No, like, uh, now, I ask you a simple question. Is this a joke of Jews making fun of, stu making fun of stupid Christians? Or is this a joke of Christians, how, oh, this is only how the Jews can understand that, blah, blah, blah. It's unbelievable how I get... Whenever, mm. almost 50-50, no? Mm. And so, that yeah, would be the problem not. here, how to... <laughs> very patient. Ah, sir. Um, Alex is so dangerous about the eradication, or the eradication of God, 
of belief in the acknowledgement of actual, uh, real knowledge of the existence and person of God. What, what is, you said there's very many that's like fundamental things to myself. And so I'm just wondering if you could be a little bit more precise. You may have already answered the question, so I apologize for that. I just, I missed it. So could you go over that one more time again? No, my, my, okay. Let's avoid the term dangerous. What I'm only saying is that, uh, what I'm only saying is that for me, uh, what is precious about belief is precisely this way, this, how should I put it, wager, existential wager on accepting the absurd, the impossible. And that for me is all that belief is about. And I don't even mean only believe in the, here believe in the sense of, uh, in uh, belief in the sense of uh, in the sense of religious belief but even political belief and so on and so on and i think that uh, dangerous in the sense of uh, i think that all emancipatory politics is lost without this this type of belief let's take the question of racism for example i th claim that without this kind of article of faith you get lost in this okay maybe you blacks and us whites, maybe we are the same, maybe we are not. Let's first measure our brains. What if we discover that I or you have, you know what I mean? You, you cannot approach it this way. You have to posit an act of belief. To give you another example, uh, what I mean by belief, a totally different one. For example, in Germany, in, I often refer to this example in my books, in Germany, in, let's say we are in Germany, 33, 34, and, uh, you debate with your friend who is anti-Semitic, you are not, and then you propose, look, we are talking about Jews in abstract, let's simply look at the Jews, let's see how they really are. I claim the moment, let's precisely transpose the debate into the terms of knowledge. I claim the moment you do this, you are lost. You miss the point. It's, you already concede the point to anti-Semitism, because the moment you put it in the terms of of how the Jews really are. The result is clear. You will discover that, okay, of course the Nazis exaggerate a little bit, Jews are not so bad, but there are many bad Jews and so on. It is true, I mean, are we aware how we always make fun of the Nazis of blah, blah, but are we aware, and this is for me not an argument for Nazism, how many of their statements were true? For example, when they claimed but 80% of lawyers in Berlin are Jews. 60% of journalists are Jews. Jews have a crucial influence. I'm very sorry, but this was true, no? And my point is precisely, but in no way it justifies anti... You know what I mean? The moment you translate this fundamental, uh, uh, how should I call it, ethical religious question into questions of knowledge, you are lost. The tragic example here for me is uh, Francis Fukuyama's it's no longer the last book, that on, on I, what's the title, Freedom Something, on biogenetics and the dangers of biogenetics, where he tries to ground bio, he tries to ground human dignity directly in our knowledge about human nature. And the result for me is crazy. He claims that his argument against biogenetic interventions is that our experience as free agents and so on is only possible with a certain... Uh, uh, genome biological structure. So we shouldn't mess in it, but doesn't he see that this very reasoning 
undermines it. Because the moment you say that our human dignity is based in certain genetic structure, you already devalue it, I mean. What kind of dignity is this if it's just a matter of, you know, that's the, that's the problem for me. Or even, for example, uh, here I have a fundamental problem with some religious people, with Catholics, especially who are so opposed to, and I would provoke you, do you have an answer to this? Namely, they are on the one hand opposed to biogenetic interventions, blah, 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 and their argument is usually because man is not just an object, biological mechanism who can be manipulated, man has an immortal soul, blah, blah, blah. My answer is, reply to this is, reaction is totally common sense one. Wait a minute, if man has an immortal soul, then why prohibit biogenetic intervention? We only mess with the body there, no? You know what I mean? It's very strange logic. The logic is, uh, man has an immortal soul, which cannot be affected by biogenetic experiments, so let's not do the experiments. What, what's the point? The only intelligent answer that the priest gave me is the radio theory answer. It's really intelligent. The idea is that our body to our soul, it's like the radio to the program that you hear. It's true that the program is not in the radio. But to hear the program, the radio must be properly tuned. You know what I mean? So, so if we do bi biogenetic manipulations, we may put the radio out of tune so that we will no longer get the message and so on and so on. Okay, I don't find this answer satisfactory, but it gets, it gets problematic here. So again, what I'm saying, but it is a serious question, I agree with you. The question for me is, and here I see a big failure with Habermas and some others who oppose biogenetics, but the way I think they oppose it is that they simply avoid the problem. Their logic is the following one. Our human identity is based on certain notions of autonomy, freedom, responsibility, and so on. If we do biogenetic manipulations, we undermine this very, no but for me, the question is not simple, as simple as that, because the moment we can do this, we already accept that basically we are not autonomous, free, and the true dilemma is then, do we accept the fact that we are not free, or do we ignore it to, in order to maintain the illusion that, that we are free? For example, when people say it's not fair to enhance your abilities with some drugs and so on, that in this way you cheat, like if you do an exam, it's not fair to, you know, whatever. But the true tragedy for me is that the moment you accept that you can change your psychic characteristics with a drug, this means, even if you don't do it, that you already accept that your psychic characteristics are, if they are something that can be manipulated with chemical elements, it means they are basically just an effect of some other chemical combination there. So you already accept it. So for me, this is for me a true problem of biogenetics and so on. To put it in pathetic terms, how to save freedom? Can freedom be saved? By, if we indulge, I think it can be, and to make a little bit of propaganda, in a book of mine which will appear <laughs> called The Parallax View, I have, it may surprise some of you, I have 200 pages of detailed 
dialogue, but it's a one-sided dialogue. They will probably ignore it with, with, uh, with, 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 with Dennett and all of them. I go in detail into, no, I have a great appreciation of today's brain sciences. I'm not that arrogant European who dismiss them in this easy, transcendental way. You know, they are naive reductionists. I think there are wonderful things happening in them. But I think that they then, sorry, I, do you want to ask? I will stop, sorry. We have, we have time really for only one last yeah, yeah. and very brief question, okay? There are lots of people who want to see, but we really have to stop because a lot of people have to go. So let's have one quick question. Oh my god. I haven't seen it. It's too traumatic for me, yeah. <laughs> ah, you mean that dead of night? No. Being there. Ah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you might say a few words as to why that movie. The being there. Yeah, being there. The, the oh. No, first, let, you mean, but uh, I don't get it. You mean it was on the list? Where did I select that movie? As one of your favorites. Sorry? Ah, yeah. No, but you know, don't, don't put too much into that. I select, I mean, I selected it because my wife wanted to see it. I mean, it's, <laughs> no, but, I mean, uh, so it's not, you know, this is an example, an example of what Lacan means, desire is the desire of the other, no? But more seriously, the reason I like the movie is nonetheless that it's clearly a movie about, trans you saw the movie, I hope, uh, with, about transference, no? A guy, you remember, a total idiot who was all the time in that house, gardener and so on, and he's misperceived as a wise guy at the end, even considered to become the president. And so how, uh, how this, you find yourself at the right place and you, you know, this pure idea of, not, it's not what you really are, it's, this is what is called transference. But the reason I admire the movie is that it resisted a certain temptation. The temptation would have been to paint the character played by Peter Stellas, Chancey Gardner or what, uh, uh, to, 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 say, to paint him as a guy who is just an ordinary, warm human he remains monstrous to the end. Mm. I like this in the movie, that it's not the cheap Hollywood, you know, an ordinary guy. Which mm. It's this monstrosity which is maintained to the end. On the other hand, I mean, uh, no, no, I was looking for different films there, which unfortunately they didn't have, so there are much darker sequels there.